Welcome. Good morning. Um, this is probably everybody, but this is Systematic Theology. You guys have been here every week. Um, who can tell me what the main question that we're trying to answer every week is in Systematic Theology? And Nick is not allowed to answer because you answered last week. What is the big question that we're trying to answer with Systematic Theology? There, there you go. What the Bible says about fill-in-the-blank topic. You can make a systematic theology about anything, really, but we take the Bible's topics as the most important topics. Um, and today we're, we're looking again at what the whole Bible says about providence. Now, you guys may be thinking after last week, like, another week on providence, really? We really went deep last week. And today we're going to go a bit further, but it's going to be more examining questions that come up with providence. Questions that come up uh, after you understand providence, after you know the, the sort of framework of providence. But before we jump in, I'd love to give away a book that, um, in the words of Cliff Hughes, is suitable, is fine. Uh, no, just kidding. He, he did say that as a joke last week. But J.I. Packer's Concise Theology, this is not necessarily specifically about providence, but um, touches on topics as broad as um, revelation, like we've talked about, God's authority, his creation, um, his attributes, Christ's attributes, just the personal work of Christ, what the Spirit is doing, what the Spirit is. It's really just, honestly, this course, but packed into, let's see, less than 250 pages. Who would be held by a copy of this? Sweet. Let me know what you think. I've not read it, but um, we'll see if Cliff is correct. If it's suitable. Um, let's start with the word of prayer. Awesome. Father God, we come to you this morning humbled by your love, your patient care for us. We praise you, God, for your goodness and your loving control over all things. You're not, you're not a God of confusion, but we are delving into some more confusing concepts and questions this morning. And so we just pray you would help us understand everything that we're able to understand and that when we face mystery, that you would comfort us through that and remind us of what we do do know about you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So providence helps us answer life's biggest questions. Like what is God doing? Does God care about me? Uh, just basic questions that every person, Christian or non-Christian, asks themselves. Um, but Providence, you'll see on your handout, I just have a quick review of last week because we, we're going to need to remember everything we talked about last week in order to get this week right. Um, and before we get into the person and work of Christ um, in the next few weeks. So Providence is really that, that active, ongoing relationship that God has with his creation. You'll see it there. It's just this active, ongoing relationship with creation. What you get when you mix God's character with a fallen creation his goodness, his wisdom, and his sovereignty mixed with a fallen world. Now, how does he intersect with that? That's what you get with providence. Um, but I have there the three main ways that, that providence kind of manifests, three ways that God's providence flows out of his character. Um, and I left blanks because I, I would love for you guys to, to memorize these kind of $10 theological words so you guys sound super smart. Um, <laughs> What about that first one? What do you think that term was last week? Preservation. Preservation. Yeah. So God sustains. He upholds all things. Everything stays the way that it is and is preserved every day because God is in the the driver's seat. God is in control. Preservation. That's great. Yeah. What's the next one? It's a bit... A bit more off the beaten path as far as words that we use. Anybody remember? It starts with a C. Concurrence. Amazing. Yes. So concurrence, so God works in tandem with, alongside, concurs with, um, in and through everything. So he's not just preserving the world, keeping it as it is, but he's actually active working with people and animals and things in this world to to work out his purposes so concurrence he's coming alongside creation and working in it and through it 
And that last one, we use this word a little bit more often. Government. Yeah, good. So preservation, concurrence, government. Government's fairly clear, but it's necessary for the others two to, to matter. Because if God's not on the throne, these two other ways of God's providence don't really matter. Uh, if you remember, you know, he's not just one actor among many in this kind of pinball machine we call life. Like, he is actually king over all of creation, over all of this world. So, preservation, concurrence, government, these three aspects kind of work together to affect God's purposes. Any questions about these before we turn to what we're going to talk about today? Any questions from last week that just popped in your head, you need to ask it? Or comments? Cool. Well, I, I raised some questions last week, but I let them linger in your minds for a week. I, I let them kind of like linger. You know, how exactly should we understand God's sovereignty with like a human freedom, like free will, and trust me, we're not going to answer that completely in 45 minutes or an hour. But, but really, I mean, it, it matters practically. If God is truly sovereign, how, why are we held responsible for our evil acts? Like, if he's truly sovereign, and why is God not held responsible for those things? How can God be good and powerful, and then yet there's suffering and evil in this world? You know, just questions that come up when you see that God is in control, he's loving, and yet what we see in our everyday lives is not, seems to not fit with that. I'm not going to say it doesn't fit with that. Um, you know, why do toddlers have meltdowns only on Sunday mornings? Why, why does that happen? You know, um, joke. Serious topic, but joke. Um, and just a quick aside before we get into this, like the, the core truths that we need to see in scripture, I just want to be super clear. You guys did not come here this morning, get in your cars and drive to church so that you could hear Sam Connect answer this for you, answer those really serious, tough questions that run deep. You did not come here to hear from me. If I'm doing my job correctly, you're going to hear from the Lord in his words, not man's words to answer these questions. Because as we'll come to see, we can't just depend upon humanly wisdom, like human wisdom, worldly wisdom, to really understand how God is working in this world. We need his word. Just a quick aside. So how do we go about understanding these things? How do we understand these sort of questions that pop up with providence? I think we need to look at three biblical truths, three core biblical truths. And they're there on your handout. And as with last week, I put a bunch of scripture references here. We're not going to read every one of them. And I would highly, highly recommend you take this as a tool in your quiet times this week, as a tool uh, just if you're meeting up with someone, let's read these passages together um, and really dig deep into these three core truths. Um, But let's get into it. God is absolutely sovereign. We've referenced it already. We talked about that last week extensively. And we've talked about it with the attributes of God. He's independent. He is sovereign. You know, we see that in Psalm 104, 14, referring to God. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. He does that. He is sovereign over all creation. God's over, also sovereign over human actions. So Proverbs sixteen nine, great memory verse. The heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16, 9. He's even sovereign over human hearts. I don't know how often you guys think about this, but human hearts even, not just actions, but Ezra, Ezra 6, 2 is a perfect example of this, describing God's people returning from exile. Quote, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So God's turning the heart of the king of Assyria. He's sovereign even over hearts, not just grass and animals and and, and the weather, but he's actually sovereign over human hearts. And that's a truth we need to hold in our minds. You know, it's Proverbs 21, verse 1 on display. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. We need to return to this kind of truth that, that God is king. God is sovereign. 
And so we get to this uncomfortable sort of cliff, not, not cliff Hughes, but <laughs> cliffside, cliffside, where we're looking over the edge, and we, do we take that next step? Do we press this truth further? Do we say that God is sovereign even over evil? And I believe that we do have to say that. Now, that's a heavy truth, but notice I'm saying he's sovereign over evil. He, is, he stands in judgment over evil. And evil does not dethrone God. Evil does not make him not king. God is not the author or approver of sin in no way. Is he that? And we'll think more about that in a moment. But as our church's statement of faith clarifies, he's not the author or approver of sin, but he's sovereign over evil. And it's an important relationship to keep in mind. You know, Psalm 2 is a great example. I'm not sure if I have it printed here. Yeah, Psalm 2 is not printed here, but I would, I would return to Psalm 2, and you'll see God's relationship to the kings of the earth. I'll just read for a moment. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they're just like wickedly, directly against God. And how does God respond? What is his position to this evil that's going on? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He's like, you puny ants. You just, uh, you can't even like take them seriously. I mean, this is just, you guys are evil, but you like your idea of what you're able to accomplish is wildly out of line because God is king. God is in control. He's in the driver's seat. He is on the throne. He sits in the heavens. And so I do think that we need to affirm that God is sovereign over evil because the Bible affirms that. So while God is consistently described as being sovereign over evil, the Bible never ascribes evil to God. The core truth that Scripture affirms is that God is sovereign. Evil doesn't escape his rule. There's no corner of the universe that is outside of God's, God's reign. Sin and rebellion exist, but God is not dethroned. We may think that we're doing that when we sin. But God remains sovereign in control, no matter how much as creatures, you and me, twist good gifts for our evil purposes, he remains sovereign. That kind of gets us into that second biblical truth that, you know, we, you know, evil is committed by humans. Like, it's just a normal, as, that is a fact that everybody can affirm. Evil is committed by people. And so that second core biblical truth, humans are morally responsible creatures, all of these are just reminders because I think I believe Cliff really addressed this with um, creation and then particularly with doctrine of sin and humanity. But we make choices. We obey. We disobey. We believe. We defy. We make real decisions. This or that. Evil or good. Um, righteous or unrighteous. But our choices never function. They never have the effect of making God an accomplice of evil or responsible for evil. They can't actually elevate to that level of, okay, we've, because we've chosen this, God's, God's really responsible for the evil act. This is clear in that, in that famous command to repent from Paul in Athens. And we're jumping around scripture a lot, but I just want you guys to see this is in God's word, and we're going to be flipping quite a bit, but Acts 17, you can go there if you have your Bibles, because we'll, we'll be there for a moment, but Acts 17, Paul is speaking in Athens, and he's, he's speaking to non-believers, like non-Jews, non-Christians, people who don't, don't really know this God, and then what does he say in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So how can he ask people to repent? Not ask, remind people that God commands them to repent if we don't make choices that, are, that we're responsible for. Just a simple next step from that, that sermon that he gives in Athens. We make choices, we're held accountable for them. And Paul tells the Athenians, 
that God commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn away from sin, because God's not really responsible for their evil. He's not telling God to repent. It's just a simple, you know, Christianity 101. Um, that's what we see on display here. Have you ever noticed in that a kind of famous question, why does God allow bad things to happen? Have you ever noticed the wording of really who's on the stand there? We never seem to ask the question how scripture would call us to ask that same question. Why did I do this or that bad thing? Like that's what scripture would call us to ask ourselves. Why did I lie to my employer? Why did I feed anger in my heart? Why did I look at that person with lust? Instead, we want complete freedom, complete total freedom. And then we would like to put God on the stand. Like, oh, why'd you allow this to happen, God? Why'd you allow bad to happen? And we kind of want it both ways. And that's just an observation as we press forward. But let's constantly seek not only to let Scripture answer our questions, that's kind of what we're doing right now, but also I wanted to reshape the questions that we ask, the wording with which we pray to the Lord, like, why did I do this, this terrible evil? Um, let it reshape the questions that we ask. Joshua fourteen fifteen is a wonderful example. Joshua 14, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord... Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the god of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's Joshua speaking to the people. And he's not, it's not an illusion of choice. We really do have choice. We really do have the freedom to choose to rebel against God or to follow him on our knees. Like that is, that is a choice we're given every single day, every single moment. And yet we find, I mean, as, as we know from previous lessons and just every week uh, from the sermon, we, every time we read scripture, we see that humans have chosen the former, have chosen sin, have chosen rebellion. And we're going to be held responsible for that. So all these are heavy truths, but I want us to, to end with a third, a third core truth that God is good. God is good. So he is sovereign, yes, and he is sovereign over evil things that happen. He's not dethroned by that. We choose evil consistently, and it's our own free choice. And yet, God is good. God is good. And we, this is why we talked about this. This is such a core truth. that This is why we talked about this in week three, week four, something like that in this class. Right after talking about the word of God, we talked about the goodness of God among his attributes, because it's central. God's never presented as an accomplice of evil or having a secret, malicious agenda. I don't know if you think about God that way when you pray. Do you think about him that way? Like, what is God really planning here? What's he really up to? We need to, we need to eradicate those thoughts, because the Bible has no room for those thoughts. It really has no room. He doesn't stand behind evil in the exact same way he stands behind good. He has no secret agenda. He's no accomplice of evil. So more certain than gravity, more certain than the sun coming up this morning and tomorrow and the next day, more certain than that is the goodness of God. Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Okay, we can affirm that. We can affirm that. But what do we do with human responsibility and God's goodness? And I would just give you another passage to reflect on, I believe. Yes, this is printed here on your handout. Particularly circle this one, come back to it, pray through it. But, for, uh, but James chapter 1 Verses 13 through 15. James chapter 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Not, not one person. Not like that one exception over there. No, he doesn't tempt anyone. 
But each person is tempted when he is allured and enticed by his own desires. So originating with us. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. God is not any part of that. He is completely depicted out of the picture. Because he is totally good. So return to this passage. When you when you have questions about God's providence. So these three truths we need to hold up all at the same time. But I wanted I've built in some time to really hear from you guys. These three truths, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, and God's goodness. What are some dangers of denying one or more of these? If we don't hold up all three at the same time, what are some pitfalls or dangers of that? Mm-hmm. I, I, I guess the danger is because they're interlinked. And I, I see an interlinked or interwoven quality. And if you deny, say, that God is perfectly good, you, you are at risk or a danger of... Um, of the, of the acknowledgement of sovereignty mm-hmm. or, you know, placing, you know, to the example of moral, um, moral blame or making us the morally responsible creatures. If God is not perfectly good, that's mm-hmm. suggesting a partial fault. And however minuscule that is, yeah. that goes against the notion of being perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So if we deny that he's good, we kind of just have this sovereign, like, evil dictator, you know? Um, yeah, that's good. What else? What about the others? If we deny, if we keep God's goodness, but we deny something else, what are some dangers of that? If God is not completely sovereign, then you have to ask the question, who, who is? So we have to ask, who is God, sovereign if God isn't? Yeah. And if he's only good, but he's not all-powerful, then he's kind of sitting up there waving his hands as to, well, I wonder what they're going to do today. I hope they go for me. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a wimpy viewpoint of God as well. Yeah. That's good. So wimpy God is not sovereign. He's good, but we choose evil, and he's kind of just in this, like, eternal battle, you know, with, it's almost like a duelist, like, good and evil are just battling each other on equal footing constantly. Yeah. And then in regards to us being morally responsible, if we take it to an extreme, we can just be faithless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if we just keep God's sovereignty and the don't worry about our own responsibility. Yeah, we're just sort of robots. Yeah. Like, we're just not really making choices. That's not really how the Bible presents us. What else comes to mind for you guys? Just to make it more pointed, which of these are you most, you don't have to get too personal, but which of these are you most susceptible to not hold up 100% of the time? You know, not outright deny, but just you, you start pulling back on one of these. Um, your prayer life and your your Bible reading, just in your daily life. Yeah, I think it's very easy um, for us to we, we fail to grasp the absolute sovereignty of God, and um, by that I mean we often in our humanly ways try to control or maneuver things as if we are the sovereign, mm-hmm. and that we have the ability, or, or or we just we don't put our faith in God, we put our faith in ourselves. Yeah, that's good. To put faith in our own power, I mean, what are we doing? We're saying God's not really the, the one in control, not really sovereign. Um, that's good. Yeah, I, I think that's maybe the most common one of these. What else? I think all of us are somewhat tempted if when we get in a hard circumstance to, to question God's goodness in that point. Mm-hmm. Why does this happen? Yeah. Yeah. If you really loved me, you wouldn't have allowed this. That's good. I think we see examples all throughout Scripture, we don't have the time to go into them, of of people, of real people like you and me, struggling with these three being held together and denying one of them or or multiple. I mean, even on page three of your Bibles. What does Adam say? The the woman who you gave me, gave me the fruit, and... um, I, I just had to eat it, you know? Like, seriously, come on. But would we be any better? Like, right? So, doubting even our own responsibility. No, God, God's on the stand. He's responsible. 
for everything that I do. That's wrong. What else? What was mine? Yeah. Yes. Uh, here's a book recommendation. Um, a friend of mine from college way back when he recommended it to me by Alistair Begg. Mm-hmm. And it's called The Hand of God. And it's really him yeah. expounding on Romans 8 28. But he goes back to the life of Joseph in Genesis yeah. and looks at all of that. And it's like all of the stuff that you talk about bad stuff happening to a guy. Okay, he was somewhat arrogant probably. Yeah. But still in all. God's in control of all of that. Yeah, that's good. You know, the forgetfulness of the, uh, you know, the guy in prison. Mm-hmm. Another two years, you know, you know, it's not another two minutes go by. It's not another two months go by. Another two years goes by, and he's mm-hmm. still sitting in there before the guy remembers. Oh, yeah. So Alistair Begg, The Hand of God? Yep. It's, it was a book that he wrote towards, uh, I think it was written in 99. Yeah. So it's a little bit out, you know, as far as, yeah. Yeah. Hey, scripture is never outdated. So, yeah. There you go. That's awesome. All of that. Um, yeah. No, that's good. That's good. I am always recommending books. Um, I don't know that book, but I trust your recommendation, Frank. Um, but I do have a, a few recommended readings on the back, particularly Big God by Orlando Sayer. Big God. It's super short. I mean, a hundred pages, maybe, uh, read it in an afternoon. And uh, that's number one recommendation. If you want to go deeper, these are some others. Uh, I gave away the mystery of Providence last week. And then we'll actually draw a little bit later today from spectacular sins by John Piper. Um, very practical, very practical book on just what is God doing in the world? Um, what is he doing? What is he up to? Um, and how is it for our good? All right. So we we need to hold these in tension. We need to hold all three of these truths together. Uh, but just returning to those those hard questions: How can we understand God's sovereignty, human freedom, working hand in hand? How? Why are we held responsible for evil acts done, and God's not? Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's good. So hardening the heart of Pharaoh, that is huge. We're going to look at three examples in Scripture of just God's providence on display um, in somewhat kind of confusing ways. But that is not one that I included, but I almost did, actually. God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. So you can see that as, I believe, like, there are multiple Psalms that refer to that event, and they're actually, like, praising God for what he did there. And even in like the song of Israel after they're saved, they're actually praising God for what he did with Pharaoh. And so you see there, Pharaoh's heart, he really did choose. Yeah, I don't want to go too far in the weeds, but he really did choose what he chose. But God was sovereign over those choices in a way that is both good and you can see, you can actually see the good purposes working themselves out. But he was not the origination or like the origin of sin, um, if that makes sense. I think we have to hold all those kind of together. And we'll actually, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think if you if you go back to Scripture's teaching that essentially everybody's heart is inherently sinful, mm-hmm. and like when we talked about sin, but none of us are as, as evil as we might be. Sure. And yeah. that's only because of God's restraining grace. So for Pharaoh to do what he did, what, we, what Scripture referred to as hardening his heart, it only requires God to remove his Yes, grace. that's a very it's good... It's something he does, it's something that he didn't do. Very good clarification. to be pardoned in his yeah. sin. Or any, like you said, any of us might have acted that way, yeah. or be that way, were it not for God. Very good clarification, Cliff. This is not, yeah, this is not necessarily God standing in behind evil acts the same way that he does good acts, where he's directly acting, but he simply just needs to step back and just, like, let evil... Um, <laughs> Or let the hardening of hearts occur. Let people des- like feed their desire for evil. Yeah. Another thing that just kind of reminds me of what Cliff was saying, when you look at the, the different accounts of the plagues, in numbers, I think in the majority of the times it says God hardens his heart. But in the, 
in those, as they play out, there are also a couple of times mm-hmm. where it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So yeah. he was not in any sense, you know, oh, too bad for me because he, just, he made me do this and I'm not, that you can't yeah. go there either. Yeah, he, he naturally in himself desired what he yes. did. Yeah, yep. it's important, important clarification. Uh, but I think a lot of these sorts of questions get answered um, in another $10 theological word. So I, I only have one for you guys this week. I, I had three, four, actually four last week for you guys. But next time you're around Christians or non-Christians and you just want to sound super smart, uh, use this word. I have it printed there so you know how to spell it. Compatibilism. Compatibilism. It has just enough syllables so that you guys sound like really cool. Raise your hand if you've heard someone use the word compatibilism. Okay, a few of us. Keep your hand raised if you yourself have used the word compatibilism. Okay, awesome. Very few participants. Anyone, either of you guys want to give a short definition? Not cheating off your handout, but just a one sentence, quick definition. Yeah, God, is, God is totally sovereign. Humans are responsible for their actions and those two truths never... Yeah, that's the key there, that last piece. Those God's sovereignty and our choices don't actually contradict each other. Our free, our will and our choices don't contradict his will, and they work in tandem with each other. So this definition here, just really briefly, um, I put some blanks there just to hit it, hit it home, that though the free will of humans, the free will of humans and the total sovereignty of God seem irreconcilable, they both exist and are always compatible with one another. Compatible meaning they just are suitable, suitably fit. They are, they are fit together like a puzzle piece. Um, they're compatible, if that makes sense. I'll repeat that. Though the free will of humans and the total sovereignty of God seem irreconcilable, they both exist and are always compatible with one another's, with one another. So we make real choices that we're accountable for, and yet God is sovereign over all things, and those work together, they fit together. Now, you may be just thinking like, cool, are we done? <laughs> like, is that, that's the answer? No, I, I want us to keep looking at scripture um, in a moment, but I, I do want to take a, a, a pause and just a quick aside that we can really think ourselves into knots about this. Like Christians can get really scared with these questions and fearful. Just a quick like apologetics aside, we, we don't need a PhD in philosophy to answer some of these tough questions. We really don't. Because what we're dealing with is just the bad news of the gospel. If you think about it, if you're a Christian this morning and you've believed the gospel, you've believed what I've just said. And it seems complex, but it's the most basic message of Christianity. God, who made heaven and earth, is totally sovereign over all things. He made every person, and he is sovereign, and he's good. That's a core truth. And then every human, beginning with Adam, has chosen rebellion, chosen sin, and it is their free choice, our free choice. We've taken what God's given us, food, sex, money, whatever else um, that God has given us, you name it. And instead of imaging God and beautiful obedience and working out just this imaging of God's goodness in this world, we've actually twisted everything and bent it towards our own ends, our own purposes instead of God's purposes. And that's, that's a base, two core basic truths of the gospel. And that's all we're dealing with today. So I just say, don't be scared of this, um, because that's not the only news of the gospel. It's not the only news, that's just the bad news. But God, in his great mercy, didn't abandon us. Romans 3 deals with all of this wrapped up in one. For all have sinned, and we, we, we have sinned, not God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and yet are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time he might be, the just, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So accept this Jesus by faith. 
If you don't call Jesus Christ your Redeemer, your Lord, your Savior, this morning I would, I would call you to repent and turn from your sin and trust him as your, your King and your Savior. Abhor what is evil. Like, turn away from what is evil. Everything I've talked about, or we choose evil every day, every moment. Turn from that. And you can trust Jesus as your only hope in life and death. I say all that to say, we scratch our heads over this. We really, you know, work ourselves into knots and, oh my gosh, someone asked me about the problem of evil. This is really just basic stuff. Um, The more we read scripture, we see uh, the answers to these things. And we let scripture kind of understand us and our our questions. But um, any comments? Well, yeah. Any comments or questions about compatibilism, that definition? Before we, yeah. I guess we're giving, doing a lot of book topics. Mm-hmm. Um, I know J.I. Packer, he has a book called Evangelicalism and the Sovereignty of God. And while it turns mm-hmm. more to uh, evangelicalism and, and its relation to. Yeah. Evangelism. Yep. Evangelical. Yep. Tongue twisters in the morning. Um, You're good. <laughs> hey, it's like 9 30 in the morning. Yeah, so. yeah. So he talks about that, but he does, I think, he. he the, Getting into the larger picture, he spends a, the intro chapter kind of talking about, I think, what he would, what we would call compatibilism, and mm-hmm. really trying to address the at least the apparent paradox to us of free will mm-hmm. and, and sovereignty. Yeah, no, that's good. It's hugely important for evangelism, for discipleship, for every aspect. Um, I think looking at three examples in Scripture are going to be helpful to us because this is all super theoretical, like I said, but it's not theoretical when you see real flesh and blood people dealing with um, how God's acting in the world. Can I get some volunteers to read these five total passages? So Genesis 45, 4 through 8, Cliff, and then Genesis 50, verse 20. Awesome. Yep. And in a moment, Job 1, 8 through 22. Joy, thank you. And then Acts 4, 24 through 28. Thank you. And then Acts 2, 22 through 24. Perfect, thank you. Um, first, the story of Joseph. I mean, already mentioned, he's hugely important for understanding this. He's one of Israel's sons. He's betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. I mean, really, can you imagine something worse than that? Um, had any of us gone through something as terrible as that. He ends up in Egypt and is thrown in prison based on false accusation. He's ultimately delivered from prison by God. So he's in the pit, he is in prison, and he's raised up by God to be um, the one in, through whom God uses to rescue the nations um, during a famine. He's blessing the nations. He's rescuing Joseph so that he can actually bless the nations. Really cool picture there. But Genesis 45, 4 through 8. Let's read that now. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive uh, for you, many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Thanks, Cliff. Genesis 50, verse 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is, is this, about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Thank you, guys. So it was, a, it was a truly treacherous act of Joseph's brothers that led him to Egypt. I mean, it, we can just see in, the, in Scripture, in God's Word, that that is what led him to Egypt. But according to Joseph, his very words, that he's, he's recapping this for his brothers, like, actually, no, it wasn't you guys. Like, it, it was you guys, but it wasn't you guys. It was not his brothers who sent him to Egypt, but it was God. And what they meant for evil, you can see why I use that word, God was sovereign over evil. God is sovereign over evil because they meant it for evil. It's not, Joseph doesn't deny that evil exists in their hearts, in their actions, but God meant it for good. He is actually sovereign. His goodness trumps our evil. 
every day, every moment. Um, evil exists, but God is sovereign, and he's good. So God was both sovereign and good, using an act of betrayal to raise up a son of Israel who would bless the nations. Does that sound familiar to anybody? You know, um, we see this pattern just emerging of God's sovereignty, and we'll get to, to Christ in just a moment. But let's look at Job. Um, Job is presented as blameless and upright, um, and this is probably our longest passage, so I would recommend turning to Job chapter 1. Um, he's presented as blameless and upright, and God puts forward Job as basically a model servant to God. You know, he's, he's well pleased with Job's life. He delights in Job as a servant. So let's read Job 1, verses 8 through 22. Thank you, George. Sorry for the difficult pronunciations in there. Every once in a while, we get that. So we clearly see Satan acting. We see Satan and humans acting, bringing about death and destruction around Job. It's just like another one. Before that one was done speaking, another person came to report. Another person came to report. More death and destruction. More death and destruction. And this was not by the hand of God, directly. Yet God ascribes the, the giving and taking away of property. He does ascribe that to the Lord, but we see Satan and humans acting that out. And yet Satan's not in control. Those humans are not in control. They are not on the throne. And it's just, it's confusing, and it is a mystery. I don't want to stand here before you and say, like, this is not mysterious. Um, Job's not sinning by declaring that God's sovereignty, God is sovereign over death and destruction. Now that's interesting. He's not sinning by, by saying the Lord took and the Lord gave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's not sinning or doing wrong by that. There's something, there's something about Job's view of God, his big, big view of God and his providence, that draws him, even amidst calamity, to fall down on his knees and worship. Now, I don't say we should all feel guilty if we haven't gotten there. I don't want to say that, but I do want us to say that, that God is, should be working in your heart, and it, I hope that you see signs of him working in your heart over the years that you can reach this point of worshiping him and banking on the truth that you know about him through whatever suffering comes your way, through whatever evil befalls you. Um, we just we see this more and more through God's word. And if you just rely on your own heart, your own... Um, 
yeah, just sort of distance from God's word, you're not going to get to that point where you just fall down and worship through suffering. Just a long aside there, but just want to care for each of you. I, I don't want you to walk away feeling like, wow, I just wouldn't respond that way. So I guess I'm, I'm terrible. I want you guys to slowly work your way towards there um, with the Lord's help, with the Spirit's work on your heart, looking to Christ. Um, and that's where we'll, we'll turn next, is looking at Jesus. So the crucifixion of Jesus, sinless son of God, sinless. Without, you, you can't find violence in him. You can't find a seat in his mouth. His crucifixion is the most evil atrocity ever committed on this earth. There's nothing more evil than that. Yet we're told it happened by the hand and the plan of God. So Acts describes early Christians praying together, and we can read Acts 4, 24 through 28. Peter makes a similar point at Pentecost in his sermon. So just Acts 2, 22 through 24, we can read that. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death, because... It's not possible for him to be held by it. Thank you, guys. So men killed Jesus. You know, it's a really good question to study. Who killed Jesus? By whose hand did it happen? We have to say men killed Jesus. I mean, he didn't just die all of a sudden. He was killed on a cross 2,000 years ago. And yet, God sovereignly oversaw it. He planned it. And he predestined it, he ordained it to happen. And if, if there's one example in scripture of just the wickedness of humans actually being overcome by the goodness and the sovereignty of God, it's this act. And it's sort of the, the, the key to understanding other acts in scripture. And we get this pattern before the cross and we get... Pieces, we get sort of replications after the cross in the Acts of the Apostles. Um, but really, this is the climax of man's wickedness not having the final say. I mean, his resurrection, he loosed the pangs of death. Death couldn't reign over God. That is just a glorious truth. So as, a, as we hold together these, those three core biblical truths, they're not just sort of like floating out there, they're connected in this one event and in the others we've talked about and countless others, where God's sovereignty, his goodness, actually has the final say over evil. And yes, evil exists because we choose it, but God is in control. So before we move into some application, you know, what do we do with all this? How do we live our lives? Any comments or questions on anything we've talked about so far, particularly these biblical examples? All right, well, I'm going to turn it back back to you guys because I want to hear from you, how should we live? What, what does this mean for us in our daily lives? Before we get into what I have here for you, and I, I wrote out lots of application on this because it's a very application-heavy um, topic today, so you guys could take that away. But before we go deep into that, what would you guys say? What does God's sovereignty and his providence, his goodness, our responsibility, practically, what should we do about evil and suffering? You can answer that many different ways.
Lord's Prayer, we pray that the Lord would deliver us from evil. Yeah. Both the evil in our own hearts and the evil that's external that can happen to us. So we pray that for ourselves and for that's good. other believers. Yeah, so we need to pray that we would be delivered from evil. That God would, would deliver us. That's good. Sam, I think one of the things that helps me is when we focus too heavily on the world around us, whether you know our own sin in the world or just you know we look and hear what happens in Afghanistan or a hurricane or mm-hmm. or whatever it could be, and if we if our focus is just on that, we would get really really down. We get pretty well laid in the, mm-hmm. in the gutter. And I think what one of the things that's helped me through the years is just to realize that this life is really not everything. Yeah. And you know, we've got some people in our church who've gone to be with the Lord at a very, very old age. Mm-hmm. One of them hit a hundred, one of them is hundred and four. Mm-hmm. And when we stop and think about that, I mean, you know, for most of the people in here, a hundred and four years old, that sounds like, you know, golly, you know, that lady was born at a point when, you know, they were driving Model T cars. Uh, yeah. And yet, in light of eternity, that's a vapor. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, if we live our lives as if this is everything, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a wrong focus. Yeah, these are momentary afflictions. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. When you're going through them, they don't seem like they're wrong. No, and it doesn't den- that doesn't deny that they're very real. Right. Yeah, that suffering is real, that evil is real. Um, First, I think we need to look to the cross. I mean, we, we talked about this already, but I just want to turn to something that, that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians. And it's, you know, the, I'll just quote it, and then we'll talk about it. But 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And I've said multiple times this morning, these are mysterious truths that we that we see in Scripture. And I just want... To, to set our eyes on the cross first as we engage with these things. Um, just as you go away from this equipping class today, as you go about your weeks, look to the cross and don't trust on human wisdom. That's why I started out the way I did, where you're not getting answers from me, you're getting answers from the Lord, and you're having your questions reshaped by him. Because I don't want your faith to rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that is that is why Paul sought to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. And then, yeah, looking to the end, you know, Frank mentioned, Frank mentioned, look, this is not all there is. You know, we're not materialists. Like Cliff taught a few weeks ago, this is not everything that exists. Um, evil and suffering now um, is not forever. So Revelation 21, 3 through 4 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. God's sovereignty is certainly confusing now. It is mysterious now. But we know with certainty where it's headed. And that can give us hope now. So evil, suffering, sin, mourning, crying, pain, death will be no more because because God's loving and he's in control. Those are related to each other. And, you know, we're thinking about what we do with evil and suffering, but I think on the flip side of it, we, we also need to grow as a church and as individuals in praying prayers like 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. We naturally desire evil, but because we're Christians, we actually start desiring good. We start desiring God's purposes. And we need to pray um, 
To this end, so I'll just read 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God can actually fulfill our desires for good, whereas we were children of wrath. We naturally desired evil over and over and over and over. And we still do at times. But we can desire good things now in Christ, and he is powerful and good and in control enough to actually fulfill our desires to work out our faith and to do good. That's hugely important as we just look at evil around us and we actually abhor it, we, we hate it. That's a good thing, and we should desire that he fulfill our result, our sort of desires for good. So what should we do about evil? Um, I, I printed out all these, these applications, and, and we'll go fairly quickly through them. Um, I would encourage you to reflect on these. But eight things to do with evil, and four things never to do with evil. And this is where I'm borrowing heavily, I mean 100%, essentially, from John Piper's book, Spectacular Sins. Uh, I'll just shamelessly steal. It's okay. So first, expect evil. You know, we've talked about this, but 1 Peter 4, 12. Uh, yeah, each of these has a passage, by the way. So I didn't include the passage, but you guys can, can write that down if you want to come back to these. But expect evil. Expect it to happen. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So evil will be in this life. We, we can bank on that. We, we already have seen that. We're also told to endure evil. So 1 Corinthians 13, 7. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. You know, typically read at weddings. But love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And all things does not exclude evil acts or suffering. Uh, We're told to endure evil. Now, we can also surprisingly give thanks for evil's refining effect. So 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So suffering and evil inflicted upon us in God's strange providence, in his, his mysterious providence, it actually can sharpen us and grow us and refine us. Um, and we can, we can give thanks for that. But we should hate evil. We should hate it. Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So we're not lured away to love evil things, but we still hate evil. We're called to do that. And we should pray for escape from evil, like Cliff said. You know, Jesus taught us to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil in Matthew six thirteen. And we should pray that we're delivered away from evil. Like we don't just desire evil to come upon us for no reason, um, but we can pray for escape. We should expose evil so we don't keep it un- we don't keep it hidden. So Ephesians five eleven. This is massively important. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And the implication: expose them to the light. So don't turn a blind eye to evil. We are called to much more as Christians um, to expose evil. There's some good, good work happening among Christians um, in this area. But just it's a core thing that we need to be doing with evil. And this, is, this next one is something that I think Christians particularly are called to do and are able to do in a way that others aren't. But Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that doesn't... That doesn't quite fit with the world's mindset of how to deal with evil. No, you need to, you need to hit back. Like, well, what did Jesus teach? Like, yeah, we can go deep into every one of these, and I wish we had more time, but we should resist evil. Last, last thing we should do with evil is James 4, 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Uh, we should resist evil, never giving into it. And briefly, just to close, four things never to do with evil. Never despair that this world's out of God's control. So Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. We don't need to despair. 
We don't need to give in. And never give in to the sense that because of seemingly random evil, life is meaningless. I think many of you are college students. I would say that you guys probably deal with this more in your surroundings than most of us. Just nihilism. Just believing kind of life is meaningless. Um, you can look at some of the humor, some of the pop culture being created today. It is just kind of, yeah, nothing really matters. No, no, there is evil. And God is in control and God is good. And that matters. Um, Romans eleven thirty three and 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. In verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That is that's just a good truth to remember. Life isn't meaningless because evil exists. And never yield to, to wrong thoughts about God. Never sort of malign his character because evil exists. Never think that he is unjust or he sins. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. And last, you know, we, we keep returning to Christ. We keep returning to the cross. It's intentional. Um, but never doubt that God is for you in Christ. Never doubt that through whatever evil or suffering comes your way for the rest of your life, God loves you and is for you if you're in Christ. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The cross is God's stake in the ground, forever declaring his love for us. We can bank on that. He's for us. He's our hope. Whatever comes our way. Before I, I close this out and preview next week a bit, any questions or comments or anything? Um, reactions, violent reactions to what I've taught today? Are questions still lingering in your head? You're going to walk away and like, I'll figure that out later. Mm-hmm. I think when you're younger... trusted him before you can trust him again exactly yeah and we need to know that that was set up that way yeah I mean, yeah that was designed that way and his sovereignty is going to continue to, to pull you through and mm-hmm. and you know i think people who are missionaries or something probably learn this a lot earlier in life sure. than, than us that, that don't participate in that stuff. but it's a, it's just you have to eventually let things not rock you quite as much. When we fall to pieces over something, which I, I'm a teacher and I see this a lot, mm-hmm. even with my Christian students, um, we have to remind people through ministering to them when they're going through things that he is still here for you, even though you're going through this incredibly hard time. Mm-hmm. And this is just a blip on yeah. the life, you know, and but sometimes I think people look at us as we get older and think, why is this tearing them apart? It's not that it's not. It's just we've lived enough now to know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pain is real. It's but going it's going to be fine. Yeah. You know, we're, we're going to get through it. It's not pleasant, but we're going to get through it. Pain is real, but it's not permanent. And exactly. it's, yeah, and God's still king. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, we'll um, pray in just a moment, but we're, we're going to end this this semester with four weeks just looking at who Christ is, the person of Christ. Who is he? Um, what is his nature? And then some ways, yeah, the ways that God or God has worked through Christ. What has Christ done? 
um, what has he done, what is he doing now, and what will he do in the end. Um, so let's pray. Lord God, you, you are good, and you are in control, and we, we praise you um, in these things. We praise you that you are a God who is in control and who is loving. You are a great hope, because God left to ourselves, we, we choose evil, and we bring it about. We face evil and suffering from others, but we know that you alone are righteous in all your ways, merciful to us, gracious to us, kind to us. Prepare us, Father, now as we worship you and gather with the body in just a moment. In Christ's name, amen.